Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, episode 100, 100th episode Q&A special. Last time, we talked about STS-30, the first shuttle mission to deploy an interplanetary payload. The mission itself went pretty smoothly, so instead of hanging around in low Earth orbit, we learned a lot about the Magellan Venus probe, its suite of instruments, and its concept of operations. Next up would be STS-28, but since we find ourselves at a significant milestone, we're going to take an episode to do something a little different. This is the 100th episode of The Space Above Us. I sort of suspected I'd get here someday, but it's pretty wild to actually be saying it out loud. Not including the supplementals or my brief appendicitis message, the podcast currently stands at 39 hours, 23 minutes, and 16 seconds in duration. Adding up all of my scripts, it comes out to 395,200 words. Well, a little less, since that includes stuff like headers and notes to myself that don't get read, but whatever. That many words was tough to wrap my head around, so I went looking for something comparable and found it to be almost exactly the same number of words as adding up the second, third, and seventh Harry Potter books. I know that all sounds like I'm bragging about how cool I am, but really I'm just sort of amazed we got this far, and I'm pretty proud of that pile of words. To celebrate the 100th episode, I've opened the floor to questions. A whole bunch of people sent in questions on a wide variety of topics. I was originally thinking of keeping it to one question per person, but there were just too many good questions to cut, so don't be surprised to hear the same name a few times. I'll try to keep it balanced between stuff like production details, historical stuff, and thoughts on current and future space efforts. If I didn't read your question here, I'll be sure to loop back and respond to your email or tweet or whatever. And if you missed the deadline, feel free to send your questions to jp at thespaceabove.us anyway, and I'll be happy to answer them. Anyway, let's get to the questions. We'll start off with an easy one, but I apologize since this question asker even sent me a video on how to pronounce his name, and I can't quite do it. Shahar asked me where I came up with the intro and outro music, as well as my sign-off message. One thing that I'd seen several podcasts do was start off with intro music that was copyrighted, forcing them to change partway through or just wait for their cease and desist letter. I wanted to make sure that I avoided that, so I went hunting for royalty-free music. I found a bunch of good sources, so if you're starting your own show, let me know and I can give you a hand, but I ended up on a site that let me search by stuff like mood and energy, and I landed on a track called When Heroes Walk Among Us that captured the feeling I was going for. It was pricier than a typical online music purchase, but it came with a license to use it on the podcast. I used the 23-second version as the intro and the 62-second version as the outro, and it served me pretty well. As for the sign-off, Ad Astra is short for Ad Astra Per Aspera, which is Latin for To the Stars Through Difficulties. It's a reminder that the price we pay for spaceflight, in time, money, effort, and lives, is significant, but it will achieve great things. I came up with Catch You on the Next Pass because at the time I was deep into Project Mercury, and I was surprised by how brief and infrequent their radio contact with the ground was. So the idea was sort of like I was in orbit, and I'd pick the story back up when we next had acquisition of signal. Chris from Houston asked a pretty fascinating question. If you could make a Franken spaceship from pieces of each American spacecraft, what features would you pull from each vehicle? Feasibility not required. This one sort of nerd-sniped me. I found myself rolling it around in the back of my head for days. Here's what I'm going to go with. From Project Gemini, I want its budget, schedule, and simplicity. 
Gemini is remarkable from going from a blank sheet of paper to flying in orbit super fast, and doing so while not straying too far from the original budget. And its simple design prevented long delays whenever some particular tank or wire needed to be replaced. From Apollo, I want the ability to operate beyond Earth orbit. That includes unusual radiation and thermal environments, long-range communications, and the ability to withstand high-speed re-entries. From the shuttle, I want a bunch of stuff. Opinions vary on this, but learning about the shuttle program has put me firmly in the mindset that having a crew on hand for spacecraft deployments is incredibly helpful. Just think of how many times I've described the crew intervening, and we've only covered 29 shuttle missions. Along those same lines, the ability to carry a large payload up and back, as well as a dexterous arm to manipulate it while we're up there, is super important. And lastly, the ability to land on a runway is definitely handy. From the ISS, I want the nicer instrument. This is basically a GPS-like device that uses pulsars instead of GPS satellites to perform navigation. I'm not sure how much our Frankenship needs it, but it sounds pretty powerful, so I'll take it. And lastly, though nobody really knows these numbers, I bet it costs less to refurbish and refly a SpaceX Dragon than the Space Shuttle Orbiters, so I'll take that. And while we're at it, I'll take a few of its touchscreens. I'm a little uneasy about how much Dragon relies on touchscreens, but having a few of them would be great since it'd be easy to reconfigure controls for each mission, or even on the fly. So there you have it. We'll call it the International Space Drishatalonai. Rolls right off the tongue. Bob from Vancouver asks, What is your favorite portrayal of an astronaut or NASA employee in film or TV? If we're talking about fictional people, I'd probably go with Mark Watney in The Martian. There are plenty of realism issues to quibble about with the book and film, but I think Watney's determination, ingenuity, and complete inability to give up perfectly captures the spirit of the astronaut corps. For real people, I think I'm going to go with Ed Harris's portrayal of Apollo flight director Gene Kranz in the film Apollo 13. Harris's performance did an excellent job capturing Kranz's tough and competent attitude, and I think it was one of the key reasons for the success of the movie. Jay from Petawawa, Ontario in Canada asks, Where do you start your research on an episode? Considering that I started the show with literally no real research or history experience, this has changed a lot over time as I got better, so I'm just going to talk about how I do it now. If anyone out there has real experience doing research like this and has suggestions for improvements to my process, I'd actually love to hear them. I'm also going to expand on Jay's question a bit and have it serve as a general how-does-the-show-get-made question. This is going to sound like an ad, but for a little over a year and a half now, the core of my research process has been my iPad and an app called Notability. Thanks to Joe from Seattle for introducing me to Notability in the first place. On there, I have hundreds of documents in PDF format that I can read, highlight, write on with the stylus, collect clippings in one area, all that good stuff. Examples of documents that I've started hoarding are press kits, mission reports, operation handbooks, oral histories, old magazines, technical papers, NASA newsletters, you get the idea. Actually, on that note, if anyone has a good way to access back issues of Quest, the quarterly history magazine, please give me a heads up. Typically, my first contact with a shuttle mission is actually the Wikipedia page. 
This sounds like blasphemy at first, but it's a good place to get a quick glance at what the main thrust of the mission was, as well as check the citations for any sources I didn't already know about. The next step is to read through the press kit and mission report, highlighting interesting bits along the way. I use different colors to indicate if something maybe serves as good background info, something that's part of the main narrative of the mission, or something that's really important and definitely needs to be brought up. As a concrete example from the last episode, STS-30, a low-tier highlight was that Magellan would take 18 days to check out its systems after arriving at Venus. A mid-tier highlight was that data was sent back at about 270 kilobytes per second. And a top-tier highlight was related to how high-thrust its insertion engine was, pulling way more Gs than a typical mission. I then do a similar process with all those other sources I just rattled off. Unfortunately, with the oral histories being so voluminous, I often find I can only lightly skim through them before an episode, but I'm getting better at collecting them ahead of time so I can take a look early. By that point, I've got a pretty solid idea of what I want the episode to be, so I make an outline, flush it out with a bit of stuff from my highlights, and reminders to go find specific pieces of data that I'm aware of but don't have available at my fingertips. Once all that's done, I'll just go through all my highlights again, cutting and pasting interesting stuff into one big page with most of the data I need. I liken this to mise en place, the cooking practice where all of the ingredients are set out, all measured and ready to go. All I need to do is zip through the data and make an episode out of it. I usually don't get to the crew bios until I'm actually writing the script, since they're pretty simple. I just check the official NASA bio and pull out the key facts sometimes adding a few personal details from the oral histories if I have them. In an ideal world, this would all have been like three or four weeks before an episode airs, but more typically, this is Monday, Tuesday, or even Wednesday on release week. As a concrete example, I added this sentence while editing the script before work, about 15 hours before the podcast was published. Once the script is done, I do a polish pass or two, read it out loud at least once to catch any tongue twisters, and then do the actual recording, usually about 5 hours before it goes up, or in this case, 4 hours and 20 minutes. Editing is fairly easy, since it's just me talking, and whenever I make a mistake, I hit a button to leave a mark on the timeline. Then I just need to move from mark to mark, removing flubbed lines. Then I listen to the whole thing, which is easily the worst part. Not necessarily because I can't stand hearing myself talk, because you kind of get over that at some point, but because I just wrote it, and I just read it, and then I read it again, and now I don't want to hear it again. When that's all done, I slap the intro and outro music on it, export the mp3, upload it, and set the automatic release time for midnight eastern time. Then instead of immediately jumping into the next episode, I usually slack off for a few days before panicking and starting the cycle all over again. That was a pretty long one, so let's pick a shorter one. Brandon from Tallahassee asks, What rocket or vehicle is your favorite? The tough thing here is picking a metric. Do I go by what it has accomplished? How practical it is? How cool it is? I guess I'll go with a mix. I think for spacecraft, I'm going to say the Apollo Lunar Module. What I love about it is it's just this incredible physical manifestation of pure engineering. I know that can apply to a lot of things, but I think with the LEM, its stark utilitarian appearance really puts that aspect on full display. Not an ounce of mass was wasted on that thing, and the fact that it would never fly in an atmosphere was fully taken advantage of. It's a true spaceship.
For launch vehicle, I'm going to go with one that I rarely have an opportunity to mention here, SpaceX's Falcon 9. There are other boosters that have the Falcon 9 beat in different respects, but you just can't beat those landings. I was lucky enough to be there in person for the first ever Falcon Heavy launch, and let me tell you, seeing those two side cores come flying back and land was not a sight I will soon forget. I also applaud the risk-taking and eye towards innovation and reusability that the Falcon 9 brings to the launch vehicle landscape. So I guess now we just need to figure out a way to get a LEM to fit on top of a Falcon 9. Jackie tweeted in the question, If you could have gone with the astronauts on any mission from the beginning of the space program through the current day, which mission would you want to have gone on? I sort of surprised myself by how tempted I was to say something like Expedition 60 on the International Space Station. The opportunity to engage in long-term work, do multiple EVAs, and have free time in zero gravity and a window in low Earth orbit is hard to turn down. I'd also very much have liked to fly on the shuttle, maybe one of the later ISS assembly missions like STS-134. But no, let's be real. Fly me to the moon. I say Apollo 16. Three days on the surface, a varied landscape, and the chance to hang out with John Young. You can't say no to that. Sorry, Charlie Duke. Sort of in a similar vein, Aaron from Simi Valley, California asks, What is your all-time favorite spaceflight? Adding that his favorite is Gemini 12. Gemini 12 is a cool choice. It's often overlooked, and Aaron rightfully points out that it was a pivotal mission in terms of EVA. I have some obvious candidates for this question, like the giant leap of Apollo 11, and some less obvious ones like the antics-filled STS-51i, but I think at the end of the day, I've gotta go with Apollo 8. In my mind, it captures what spaceflight is all about, for me at least. It was bold and risky. It required cutting-edge technology. It required unprecedented levels of organization, training, and teamwork. But above all that, it marks the first time that humans left Earth. It inspired all those who dream of life beyond humanity's birthplace, and by turning the camera back towards home, the astronauts provided a new perspective on our fragile planet. Jim wrote in to ask, presumably not Jim Level, which episode other than the Challenger episodes did you find most difficult to prepare for? What made it difficult? Well, you're definitely right that the Challenger episodes were the toughest, both due to the nature of the topic and the amount of prep work. Coming up with a second place wasn't easy, since this stuff sort of fades with time, but I've got two candidates. One would be the first Skylab episode. With Skylab, I had to learn a ton about this new system I knew very little about, including some crazy anomalies and fixes, all while trying to wrap up the Apollo program. I benefited from a lot of the hardware applying to both, I mean, that's the whole idea of Apollo applications, but it was still a lot to take in very quickly. My experience making the Skylab episodes led to me getting an earlier start on shuttle research, since I knew that that would also be like drinking from the information firehose. My other candidate is actually the first three episodes, which went up at the same time. They were tough just because I had to figure out the entire show, learn how to do research, learn about microphones and mixers, all while learning everything I could about Project Mercury. It was difficult for a different reason than Skylab, and a different reason than Challenger, but it was still tough. Vic in New Jersey asks, 
What are your thoughts on the moon, and does its proximity to us affect your thoughts in any way? Good question. NASA's official stance is that we like the moon because it is close to us. It's up there very high, but not as high as maybe dirigibles or zeppelins or light bulbs, and maybe clouds. The moon is very useful everyone. I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> it's going to be like four people who really enjoyed that. A second Chris, not from Houston, but who you can find on Twitter at spacey underscore UK, asks, How do you feel Dragon and Starliner compare against each other and against Shuttle, Apollo, Soyuz, Gemini, and Mercury? It's tough for me to say, since I don't know as much about Crew Dragon and Starliner as I do about other vehicles. One of the few issues I have with private spaceflight is it can be a lot tougher to get access to hard data. That said, I can take a shot. For Crew Dragon versus Starliner, they both seem like fine spacecraft, but Dragon probably comes out ahead. It's cheaper, it didn't have any major on-orbit anomalies during its test flight, and it builds on a decade of experience flying the cargo version of Dragon. I don't know a ton about the internals, but Crew Dragon seems to be a rare thing for a spacecraft, an iterative upgrade. Gemini, Apollo, and the shuttle were all such huge departures from each other. My understanding is that Crew Dragon is basically just Dragon, but with some lessons learned applied, which is pretty cool. Starliner also has its own advantages. Landing on land should go a long way to quick reusability and quick recovery of experiments. But I think they've got a lot to address after their 2019 on-orbit test. As for comparisons to other spacecraft, they both strike me as sort of similar to Gemini and Soyuz. With Gemini and Soyuz, you've got simple but robust systems that allow for some nice general operations, but within limits. Dragon's design iteration especially reminds me of Soyuz. I think both vehicles will do a fine job servicing the ISS and in other low-Earth orbit roles. In a similar vein, Spacey UK Chris also asks, Is Orion the long-awaited successor to Apollo, or will it be obsolete before it enters operational service? There are a couple of Orion and Artemis questions here, so now might be a good time to remind folks that I only speak for myself and not NASA or my employer. I also don't know a ton about Orion. Most of my spaceflight knowledge either comes from the history I'm researching, or from my current mission at work, so most of what I learn about Orion is just what I see online. That said, I like the idea of a more capable Apollo-like vehicle but I worry about its high cost and mass, which requires a big launch vehicle and might make it impractical for all but the most demanding missions. The more often you fly a spacecraft, the better, and I'm not sure Orion will be able to fly super often. I'm also sort of befuddled by the low-powered service module. Apollo could get into low lunar orbit, but Orion can't. Someday I'd like to dig in deeper and better understand how that decision was made. So I don't think it'll be obsolete, it'll just have a different range of missions it can accomplish, and I worry it might be a little bit impractical for some of them. Keeping the Orion train rolling, Richard asks, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the Artemis program. Do you feel it's an effective plan for returning to the moon long term and taking a step towards going to Mars? Or could things be done differently? I mean, things could always be done differently. Let's touch on Gateway first. Gateway is that small space station that's being proposed to be in the vicinity of the moon. I actually think Gateway is pretty neat, but I'm also a flight dynamics nerd. The orbit designed for Gateway, called a near-rectilinear halo orbit, is pretty wild. 
It's difficult to design, difficult to predict, and comes with a bunch of interesting pros and cons. So I think doing human operations at a place like Gateway will be good experience for NASA. Plus, it's a really cool and challenging problem for flight dynamicists to chew on. For Artemis in general, I'm sort of conflicted. I love the idea of a permanent base on the moon, and I love that new technology and new vehicles are being developed, but I worry about the politics surrounding the program. NASA can do anything if you give it a decent chunk of time and a stable budget, but I worry that it might end up like the Constellation program and suddenly have the rug pulled out from it one day. Also, while I'll be staying neutral on this here, I'm concerned that for a lot of people, there will be a strong incentive to cancel any large initiative put in place by our 45th president. So, I guess in short, my answer is that Artemis is rad as long as NASA actually gets the support to get it done, and it doesn't come at the cost of cannibalizing a bunch of other programs. Since we're already talking about landing on the moon, Aaron had another question. Do you think, honestly, the Russians ever had a shot at landing or walking on the moon? Their program, though first in many areas, seemed cavalier in how they just went up there and seemed to disregard safety and common sense. Yeah, I tend to agree. I've sort of touched on this before when explaining why I don't cover the Soviet side of spaceflight, but I don't have a ton of respect for their space program in those days. Don't get me wrong, they did a lot of impressive stuff and put us to shame with a lot of tech. It's just that their motivations seem... off. The Americans are going to fly two people in Project Gemini? Quick, stuff three guys into a capsule and show we can do it better. Who cares if they can't wear pressure suits? The Americans are going to do an EVA? Quick, throw Alexei Leonov out the door with inadequate planning and nearly get him killed. Kathy Sullivan is going to become the first woman to do an EVA? Quick, fly our second woman, the first since Valentina Tereshkova, almost 20 years ago, and get her to do an EVA first. To me, it seems like despite having talented engineers, the Soviet space program was primarily about appearances and marketing, with a rotten core. NASA absolutely has its own motivations related to appearances and politics, but it feels like a genuine effort towards legitimate progress. So I think that Russia could have gotten it done, if they had unleashed their brilliant engineers and worried less about shady political nonsense. But I think given the reality of Soviet life, once the U.S. decided to do it, there was no contest. If you think I've misjudged the Russian space program, please reach out and let me know. I'd love to discover that I'm wrong and learn more. Brandon from Tallahassee sent in a few questions, so here's another. In your opinion, what is the better way to induce stabilizing spin? Angled fins or small thrusters mounted at an angle? Spin-stabilized spacecraft were pretty common for a long time and are still used in some circumstances today. They'll be spun up by thrusters since fins aren't going to work so great in the vacuum of space. There's no need to mount the thrusters at an angle, though. Just make selective use of your attitude control thrusters, and you can take it from there. For the topic of spin-stabilized launch vehicles, I refer Brandon to the Little Joe Apollo Abort Test, SpaceX CRS-16, and Spaceship One XPRIZE Flight 1 to see how it goes. Matthew writes in with a fun little question. Why did Dave Scott wear a red helmet on Apollo 9? I've tried to find the answer, but have yet to find a satisfactory explanation. I'll be honest here and say that for my research here, I just poked around a bit online, but I think I found the answer. It seems that actually all of the helmets were red. 
They only look white to us because a cover, including a white beta cloth exterior, was placed on top. Keep in mind that for Apollo, the thing that kept the astronauts alive was that bubble helmet that locked into the suit. The big visor thing you see on the surface of the moon is essentially a fancy hat. And thanks to Matthew's question, I've learned that even that outer helmet has more than meets the eye. Neat. Though, literally as I'm saying this, I realize I don't know why Dave Scott didn't have that cover, so I guess the mystery remains for another day. Brandon and Jay both asked, What was the first thing that sparked your interest in space and astronautics? I'm not really sure. The best I can tell, I've just always been interested in space. My recollection is that for most of my childhood, I loved space, but didn't really understand it. I just kind of liked the idea of it. So I might not know why that space shuttle was launching, but I sure was excited about it. I asked my mom to confirm this, and she said that ever since I knew what it was, I was eager to learn more about space. She loves to tell a story of a time that we were interviewing at some preschool, and while my mom and the principal were talking, I made a little solar system out of clay, complete with asteroid belt. But while I'm not sure what sparked my initial interest, I can say with some confidence what got me to step that interest up to the next level the loss of Space Shuttle Columbia in 2003. I had been a casual follower of the shuttle program at that time, and I knew a bit about the Challenger accident, but seeing the TV footage of Columbia's disintegration completely shocked me. Just how could this happen? I closely followed the investigation, even carrying a printout of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board report around my high school. To better understand the accident, I had to better understand the shuttle and its operations. And I guess I just never hit the bottom. Chris from Houston had another question. How many books is your source collection up to? Good question. Just walking around my house without digging too much, I counted 53 nonfiction books related to space. Looking over my sources list, which is far from complete because it doesn't include everything scribbled in my notes, I count 37 books, in addition to many, many documents. In fact, since people often ask me about sources, I'm just going to share my incomplete list here. I need to sit down one of these weekends and transfer stuff from my hand-scribbled notes, but there's a lot of good stuff in there already, so if you want to check out some of my sources for yourself, head to sources.thespaceabove.us. I will say that these days I tend to use fewer books and more original documents. I enjoy reading books, but it can be difficult since it's a lot of time to dedicate to a single source, and I can't easily put them into my usual iPad-based workflow. But yeah, when I started putting that sources page together, I was a little surprised at just how many books and documents I had gone through. TC Green wrote in, asking, Are there any stories from the oral histories you have wanted to tell but had to cut for time? And if so, please share. I thought about this. I actually couldn't come up with any great examples. But I think that might be an artifact of how I work with the oral histories. When I read an oral history, I make a legend at the top of the document, mapping different topics to different highlighter colors. Each mission an astronaut was on gets a topic, along with personal stories, general tech and training, stories about people, stories about EVA, and so on. Then I read through the history, marking stuff up as I go. This means that for any one person that I've read through, it's relatively easy to find stuff related to a particular mission or topic. But I don't loop back to mark what I actually talked about and what I didn't. And I don't keep a separate list of noteworthy stories. I actually didn't realize this gap in my process until this question, so thanks for making me think about it. I'll have to make a few tweaks to ensure that nothing gets missed by accident. 
Another question from Space Y UK reads, which spacecraft or launch vehicle has had or will achieve the biggest impact on the space industry past, present, and future? My answer is a vehicle that a lot of people haven't even heard of, the Navajo. I haven't done much reading on Navajo, but I've done enough to realize that much of the stuff that we've been talking about can trace its roots back to this failed missile system. We don't have time to get into it, but the Navajo was a cruise missile that was sort of a train wreck of a weapons program. The requirements were constantly being changed, the technology was constantly coming up short, and the thing just didn't work properly. But somewhere among all of this flailing, a ton of basic research and concepts that other systems relied on were invented. When it came time to design smaller stuff like the Redstone, and huge stuff like the Saturn V, the lessons learned from Navajo were key. So though the Navajo never became operational, its legacy lives on today. Philip writes in with a question that I've struggled with myself. He says, I can't for the life of me determine when to say on orbit versus in orbit. Perhaps you would be able to shed some light on this. My answer is, not really. Because there is no real rule or criteria behind this. I think the closest you can get to a rule is if you think about orbit as a state of being or as a place. For me at least, I think if you imagine it as a state, then you would say in orbit. But if you imagine it as a place where you're getting work done, it's on orbit. But as far as I can tell, the real answer is that on orbit is just a thing people in the industry started saying and it somehow stuck. I know that I end up sort of switching back and forth interchangeably without thinking about it, so I'm definitely not helping with the problem. Another question from Bob reads, Other than, obviously, being an astronaut, what would be your dream job at NASA or any other space agency? Part of me is tempted to pick a role like the so-called Cape Crusaders, who did stuff like make sure the shuttle cabin was set up properly and got systems ready to go before launch. At least that way I'd be able to crawl around in the real spacecraft while it was on the pad. But the people who do that are fellow astronauts, so I guess that doesn't really work with this question. Really what I'd love to do is get into more advanced flight dynamics and mission design, and I'm getting closer. A lot of missions have some really hairy flight dynamics issues to dig into, requiring a lot of analyses and a deep understanding of the problem. That sounds really interesting to me. I think if I keep working at it, I have a decent chance of getting there someday. So, I guess I'll keep working at it. Chris from Houston gets one more question that rattled around in the back of my head for at least a week. He wrote, You have to put together a six-person crew to land on the moon. Four to land, two to stay on Gateway. You can choose any astronaut, any era, in their prime. Who do you choose? Sentimental reasons permitted. This is a great question. I had fun bouncing it off of people at work. First, let's define the crew positions. This is obviously just me making it up, but Gateway Engineer 1 and 2 will remain in Gateway, with GE1 serving as sort of the Gateway Commander when the landing crew is away. The landing crew will have the Lunar Module Pilot, Science Pilot 1 and 2, and of course, an overall Mission Commander. Let's go down the list. For both Gateway Engineer 1 and 2, I wanted people with a lot of space station experience, as well as experience with EVA and dealing with a crisis. For GE1, I chose Peggy Whitson. She holds the record for most time in space for an American. She's performed 10 EVAs at the ISS and commanded the ISS. I can't think of anyone better to serve as Gateway Commander. For GE2, I chose Chris Hadfield. 
He also has EVA and ISS command experience, and was also in command during the ammonia coolant leak on Expedition 35. An ammonia leak is one of the top emergencies on the ISS, and Hadfield and his crew handled it well. For a lunar module pilot, I wanted someone who had experience with rendezvous and lunar operations. For that reason, I went with John Young. Young has a ton of rendezvous experience, with two on Gemini 10, one on Apollo 10, and one on Apollo 16. He's also one of the few people to fly to the moon twice. I considered Tom Stafford for this role since he also has a strong rendezvous background, but I wanted at least one person who had been on the surface to be on the crew. For Science Pilot 1, I went with shuttle astronaut Kathy Sullivan. She's a geologist and has EVA experience, so seemed like an easy choice for a science-oriented lunar mission. And we're sort of playing it fast and loose with timelines, but she was the chief scientist and eventually the administrator of NOAA. I think that experience would help interfacing with management and with getting political support. For Science Pilot 2, I went with Judy Resnick. Resnick came from an academic background, had experience operating the robotic arm, and had a really sharp mind. To be honest, I think maybe if I dug a little harder, I could find other candidates with more geology background that might be more applicable to this mission, but the idea of Resnick walking on the moon sort of got stuck in my head, and I liked it. I think she'd be a strong addition to the crew. And lastly, our crew's commander, Jim Lovell. Lovell has two spacecraft commands under his belt, two trips to the moon, and clearly demonstrated his ability to manage a crisis in space. I think there are plenty of legitimate reasons for Lovell to get this command, but a non-zero part of my decision-making is that Jim Lovell deserves to walk on the moon. So there you go. Peggy Whitson, Chris Hadfield, John Young, Kathy Sullivan, Judy Resnick, and Jim Lovell. I'd say that's a pretty solid crew. And wrapping things up, SpaceY UK Chris gets one last question. On your current trajectory, you should reach STS-135 around the end of Q1 of 2024. At that point, you will have archived all U.S. human spaceflight launches up to the point you created the space above us. Do you plan to continue into the commercial crew in Artemis age? If so, are you preparing your scripts and research notes now to make future JP's life a little easier? Yeah, I think that timeline sounds about right. My own estimate puts it around the summer of 2024, assuming that I'll split the STS-107 episodes up like Challenger and probably have a few non-mission episodes, introducing stuff like the ISS. I say this with the reminder that four years is a long time and nothing is set in stone, but the current plan is to not continue past the end of the shuttle program. After finishing STS-135 and doing a few wrap-up episodes, I'll have covered 169 missions, across something like 210 episodes, spanning around 82 hours and probably around 800,000 words. I'm sure I'll have something to say about commercial crew and Artemis, but the current plan would not be to give them the same type of coverage. This is a history podcast, and covering current events would be a pretty big switch, one that I'm not even sure I would know how to do. Also, I actually find the idea of a finite end to the podcast to be pretty appealing, while I'm in no rush to finish the show, I'm looking forward to being able to see the complete product on the shelf, so to speak, knowing that I had successfully done it. Now, before you despair, please remember that if my estimate is correct, we aren't even at the halfway point, so there's still plenty of podcasts left. But also, I am preparing my research notes to make my future life a little easier. I've got a few ideas about what comes next. In the meantime, 
I've still got a lot more about the shuttle program to learn. And there we go. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed this episode. I got a lot more questions than expected and had a blast trying to come up with good answers to them. So thanks to everyone who wrote in and thanks to everyone who listened. You all make it possible. Since I don't really have a narrative to disrupt this time, this seems like a good chance to do a quick little plug for the show's Patreon again. If you want to support the show, join the The Space Above Us chat room and get access to some fun extras like movie commentaries, podcast outtakes, and other goodies, head over to patreon.com slash thespaceaboveus. The chat room is a good time. We're currently discussing the possibility of using differential drag to do orbital rendezvous between a European and African swallow, thanks to a question sent in by Vancouver Bob. And again, since people occasionally ask if Patreon isn't your thing, there is a PayPal link on the show's website, thespaceabove.us. All proceeds go to new books, subscriptions to archival history sources, hosting fees, and video games and beer. Next time. Next time, we're back to flying, with Columbia flying the classified mission STS-28. Classified missions are always a bit of a bummer due to all the secrecy surrounding them, but at least I'll be able to tell you why this five-person crew had six human skulls on board. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. 